Hey, Jeremy, have you ever been tempted to prescribe or order something for a patient to just make them feel better, even though you thought like maybe the efficacy or the necessity might be sort of questionable? Well, that's a very like loaded, loaded. question. I know. So, you could say no. You could lie and say no. <laughs> so what you're basically saying is, yes. is I ordered something strictly because the patient wanted it. Sure. To basically to, to appease the people. patient. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, honestly, I'm sure I have probably regularly. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a lot of reasons why we do it. It kind of reminds me of other episodes that we've had, like with Gail Bosch, when she was talking about basically like, that's the whole reason that benzos ever got prescribed to anybody <laughs> for the most part was because you sense discomfort or, um, suffering for somebody and you want them to feel better. I mean, I think that's a reason, but like, you know, do we feel like we owe something to our patients, you know, like other than a thorough evaluation, active listening, and like an evidence-based plan based on shared decision-making, of course. Can you think of examples of this? So what came to mind were like muscle relaxants. Like I feel like every time anybody goes to, if I see somebody coming in for like acute back pain, for example, and they're like, yeah, I went to urgent care, I went to my PCP, or I went to fill in the blank here, and they gave me a muscle relaxant and either an NSAID or some other pain medication and told me to like lay down. What other examples can you think of? I mean, in my daily life, I think of MRIs. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a medication, but yes. I think of like, again, like, you'll be like, I don't think we need an MRI in this situation. And they're yes. like, but I do think I need an MRI in this situation. And then at the end of the conversation, you say, listen, let's get that MRI because it's three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm tired. <laughs> and I don't want to argue with you. That's what it is. And, I, and I'd rather le have you leave this interaction feeling like you've got something out of it and that we're still friends or that you still like me or respect me. I mean, there's probably a lot of just human interaction is hard and boundary setting is hard and... You know, you want to match someone's energy to some degree. And I yeah, I'm eager to see where you're going with this. But I think I, I think that the, the level of this comes down to, like, what am I prescribing and how dangerous is it? So, exactly. like, somebody going to get an MRI, as long as I'm the one interpreting it, I consider that relatively benign. Right. If somebody says to me, I need some serious uh, oxycodone for the next, like, six months of my life, or, frankly, for the next six days of my life, right. I say, maybe that's not exactly what we should be doing around here. So... You know, again, I think it's, you know, how dangerous. Muscle relaxers are rarely going to kill somebody. They also have been shown, statistically speaking, to do nothing. So Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Put you to sleep. Exactly. So, And I tell that to people, too. Like, yeah, it's probably not really doing much for you other than some placebo effect, maybe some sedating effect. Um, the other one that I feel like I prescribe from time to time when I just want to do something benign and I get the sense that the person will not be happy with the interaction unless they get something that they couldn't get at home is uh, Tessalon pearls. You ever, oh, you ever nice. prescribe those? <laughs> No, because I, I, I mean, but yes, I have. I don't know yes. what they do. It's supposed to just be like, what, like a cough suppressant? I'm sure they actually have some degree of efficacy. I didn't look this up. This is I not think what they the... do have more efficacy evidence yeah. than beyond. Uh, we were going to do a cough episode before we yeah. really stopped doing those symptom uh, uh, episodes. Hey, sure. if anybody listening wants those symptom episodes sure. to come back, holler at us. Yes. Um, but I did do partial cough research, and Teslon Pearls actually had some evidence, much okay. more than the muscle relaxers had. Okay, gotcha. Well, but they yeah. aren't called tablets. They're called pearls. P-E-R-L-E-S. Pearls. Yes. <laughs> MRIs was, yeah. MRIs was also on my list of stuff of like, eh, it's not going to hurt you other than in your pocketbook potentially, or it may open Pandora's box to some degree. But yeah, it, it just, it may feel like if the patient doesn't get something after coming in for an appointment that we might have cheated them 
out of real treatment, or if we didn't order something that they can't just get at home or at the drugstore, that our role as physician like doesn't have value, or that we have to, or that we've blown them off, or that we don't care about their symptoms. I feel like that's sort of the complex interplay that I'm that I'm getting into. Yeah, you're making me nervous. I can't decide if this headline is going to tell me that I'm doing everything wrong or the patient's doing everything wrong. No, no. <laughs> we can all do everything right, is what I'm trying to get at. Well, Jeremy, if you know me, and I know that you do, <laughs> you you know I hate conflict. And yeah, like sometimes setting boundaries, explaining that the treatment plan is just reassurance and expected management and like a backup plan in case things get worse. It's hard. So my topic, now that I'm finally getting to it, piggybacks on the topic of antibiotic stewardship, like we talked about in previous episodes, and the pressure that we feel as healthcare providers to prescribe medications because our patients are hurting or uncomfortable or are just at the end of their rope. So my question is... What is a Z-Pack, and what does it actually do? You asked me this in real life the other day. <laughs> and now I'm asking it on the, on the podcast world, this is too. A great, this is a great question. Uh, everybody uses, I mean, this is a good one. Everyone's going to love it. And yours truly does love a good Z-Pack from time to time. <laughs> so, I know you so, do. I know yeah. you do. That's I'm okay. I'm eagerly anticipating this. The, the answer might surprise you. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, so I really settled on this topic because it's cold and flu season and everybody is sick. And I came across an article on NBC News about, uh, actually it was about mycoplasma pneumonia. Um, and, a, and there's a current outbreak of mycoplasma pneumonia in the United States, especially centered in Ohio right now. Um, can you tell the folks what mycoplasma pneumonia is? What does it cause, roughly? And I, I'll give the longer, the long term. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. It's, the first time you said it, I was like, mycoplasma. Who's mycoplasma? <laughs> Mycoplasma. <laughs> Myco. Is mycoplasma the f- famous for the walking pneumonia? It is. You're exactly yes. right. Ding, ding, ding. Not it's the walking a- dead, but the walking pneumonia. Right, exactly. Um, myco- mycoplasma- atypical pneumonia. Correct. Atypical pneumonia. So mycoplasma pneumonia, or atypical pneumonia, or walking pneumonia, is caused by a bacterium. It's called mycoplasma pneumoniae <laughs> mm. that can spread through droplets when an infected infected person coughs or sneezes. Um, the bacteria can linger in the nose and the throat uh, without making somebody sick, so you can walk around and just harbor this, like a lot of different respiratory illnesses. Um, but it can uh, they, people can develop pneumonia if that bacteria spreads into their lungs. Um, it's often a milder form of pneumonia, but its symptoms could last a lot longer. Um, and then uh, apparently cases tend to peak every three to seven years in the United States where we get like these. Mm. And of course, just like everything else in in the infectious disease world, everything's weird now because of COVID and because of the pandemic and all of our shifts. So it's happening now. Um so this is a quote from Dr. James Cottrell, who is an associate professor of infectious disease at um, UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. He said, it's sometimes referred to as walking pneumonia, which means you have pneumonia, but you're not sick enough to be in the hospital. Um, so that's that. He backs you up. Uh, in older kids and adults, the initial infection kind of looks like a chest cold. 
Um, it includes sore throat, fevers, headaches, or like a worsening cough that lasts for weeks to months. This is according to the CDC. Um, so kids under five usually have like cold-like symptoms, sneezing, stuffy noses, sore throats, uh, and also maybe diarrhea or vomiting, um, which I feel like is symptoms in yeah. any viral infection with every kid, <laughs> regardless if it's respiratory or like a primary gastrointestinal infection. Kids just get herpy when they're sick. Um, yeah, and then symptoms of pneumonia, which again includes cough, fatigue, fever, chills, usually develop within one to four weeks after somebody gets infected with mycoplasma. Um, and then kids are also likely more likely to have more severe symptoms, especially if they have weakened immune systems or they're young and they've never been exposed to this type of bacteria before. Um, again, in addition to the U.S., the World Health Organization said, this was like the beginning of December, that China has an imported increase in children being hospitalized with mycoplasma pneumonia since May. There's also increased cases in Denmark that have risen since the summer. Um, and closer to home, my seven-year-old nephew was recently diagnosed with pneumonia. I'm not sure if it was walking pneumonia or mycoplasma. It was just like he went to the pediatrician and they listened to his lungs and he had fevers and coughed for a while. And so they said, you have pneumonia. Um yeah, the and then, more you so, talk about it, the more I feel like maybe my symptoms recently sound like they were <laughs> like mycoplasma. Maybe you had walking pneumonia. Like, I feel yeah. like there's a lot of people talking about yeah. these coughs that are lasting like longer than usual. Now, we never did the cough episode, but the average length of cough is generally around like 16 to 18 days, and we yeah. always underestimate it. it and so when people are like, it's been here forever, and you're like, how long has it been? And they're like, seven days, and you're like, you're halfway there. Yeah, sorry, um, dude. If that, if not longer. <laughs> even when you're not um, even infectious anymore, yeah. But... How do we test for it? So how would how would I know if I had had mycoplasma pneumonia? Can we? Can that's we a hard test one. I th- uh, that's a good question. I didn't look that up in my research. I could look that up, but uh, my understanding Is it would sputum? be sputum. It would probably be a sputum culture where you'd have to like cough up gunk and then culture it. But even that, I don't know, it would be terribly. I mean, um, yeah. Sub sub question. Yes. Um, if we. So you mentioned that the numbers are going up, which means that people are being tested for it. But I would imagine that the vast majority of people are not being tested for it. So we yeah, probably have no clue treated. about what we have no clue what the actual numbers of this right. are. This isn't like we can't go to the wastewater and say like COVID numbers are, are going Correct. up for mycoplasma pneumonia. Exactly. And Jeremy, in your memory, what's the best antibiotic for mycoplasma pneumonia? Bring on the Z-Pack, baby. Bring on the Z-Pack, baby. This is where Z-Pack shines. And that's yes. what it made me think of this. I was like, oh, there's a whole bunch of walking pneumonia happening. That is an appropriate uh, situation in which one would prescribe azithromycin or a Z-Pack. That's right. It's azithromycin. So good. So what is azithromycin and why is it why is why does it have such a common household name? Like everybody knows why are, what a Z-Pack why do you, is. Why do you have such a problem with azithromycin? That's what you're going to get to the bottom of. Yeah, I mean. What's I, your I, beef with the Z-Pack? <laughs> my beef with the Z-Pack. So is that people ask for it when they have colds all the time. So I think that there's been quite a bit of good marketing and just even the fact that it's uh, it it's once daily dosing, except for like in the Z-Pack form, which is either three to five days where you take two on one day and then you take one a day for the next four days. That's what a Z-Pack is. And so I think that because it seems it's one, it's fast and easy. You only have to take it once Mm -hmm. a day except for the first day you have to take two. You only have to take it for a brief amount of time. Think about when you're actually treating someone with like a bacterial sinus infection, for example. You're giving them a bigger, stronger antibiotic twice a day for twice as long. So I think people like it because they take it briefly uh, and they feel like they're doing something. And it has a fun name. Like it has a nickname. 
That's I have all. some counterpoints, but you're going to tell me more information. So No, I want to hear your counterpoints, and then I'll get into, you know, what, what if any, is the problem here. Okay. Well, yep. it's not really first line for much. I agree Correct. with that. Yeah. So, um, but my counter to that is I, I, I cannot tell you what specific studies, but I can tell you that I'm aware of studies mm -hmm. that the azithromycin antibiotic as itself has associative anti-inflammatory properties. Sure. So that when you take azithromycin, even if you do not have a bacterial infection, but you do have a lung like bronchitis type of thing, the anti-inflammatory effect of the um, azithromycin does help. So that yeah. is my one pro for people who have chest coldy type symptoms that have right. been going on for 5, 7, 10, 12 days who take a Z-Pack is that it can help even if it's not bacterial. Sure. I didn't actually delve into those studies, but that's a good one, and that's probably something I could follow up on. But I've heard similar things as well. Um, okay. I came across a few articles about azithromycin specifically, one in particular from Banner Health called, just quote, why do Z-Packs get such a bad rap? <laughs> and I think it's just because, one, they're so common, and two, it's also um, uh, a good alternative to people that have a penicillin allergy after which we've talked to Dave Stukas and Rob Citrenberg. I think we have a lot fewer true penicillin allergies in the population than we think we do. In fact, much, 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 much lower. So that's probably another reason why this antibiotic is utilized a lot too, because it takes the place of penicillin derived antibiotics, um, for respiratory infections and other things. Um, so there's a quote from, uh, a pharmacist named Emir Kobik um, at uh, Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix. He said, it's interesting that we used to think of azithromycin as a cure-all for everything because that's what led to Oprah prescribing and its demise. It's no longer the first-line antibiotic physicians should be using for patients with community-acquired pneumonia, um, where strep pneumoniae, which is not mycoplasma, it's the one that causes most regular old pneumonias, still tends to be the most common bacterial culprit. Uh, he goes on to say the inappropriate use and overuse of z -packs has led to streptococcus pneumoniae resistance rates as high as 20 to 30 um, percent. This stat should be concerning because the majority of pharmaceutical companies are not investing to develop new antibiotics. And if they are, patients will be paying higher copays and out-of-pocket costs on future antibiotics. So when is it appropriate to use azithromycin? Other than we talked about atypical pneumonia. What... What, do you remember any, any other conditions for which azithromycin is the first line of treatment? Textbook answer? Like, yeah, board question? Like, what, what, are the, what other conditions, if you could, and if you don't remember, that's fine too. Like, this no, is, I would, these things. So it's for penicillin allergy strep throat. Um, yes, I'd have to look that up. But the other ones that I looked up were genital infections. So chlamydia and gonorrhea, it is first yep. line defense for treatment for that. And then um, mycoplasma avium complex prophylaxis. So that's a like a uh, a bacteria, an avian type of pneumonia um, prophylaxis in people that have HIV that have low CD4 counts. Those are the three indications that are primary indications for azithromycin. Well, and those are not all prescribed with a Z pack. Right. I mean, that's azithromycin. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. That would be a Z-Pack, but that would be azithromycin, which is the the generic of that drug. Yeah, you got some burning pee, you're getting right. You're getting azithromycin for sure. One day. Uh, yeah. Um, I just looked up with the American Academy of Family Physicians, which is my go-to for everything primary care that I've forgotten, and or if 
recommendations have changed. And the first line for people that have streptococcal pharyngitis or strep throat that are allergic to penicillin is erythromycin, not azithromycin. So a cousin to it, a different macrolide, but not a ZPAC. You're telling me I'm wrong. I appreciate it. I'll go. (laughs) Sorry, you're wrong. And I love you. And you're wrong. Call me back to the podcast when when I'm out of timeout. (laughs) Oh, God. You're out of timeout now. So why is azithromycin, why is a ZPAC prescribed so much for respiratory infections? Um, I read an article in AAP, so the American Academy of Pediatrics News, that came out in 2021 that was titled, The CDC Highlights Concerns Over Inappropriate Antibiotic Prescribing for COVID Patients. So I think a lot of um, interest was in this arena, especially during COVID, when everybody was sick and we wanted to throw everything at it. And it was like, well, I know it's a virus, but should we just give people antibiotics just in case because people are getting really sick? And, you know, we wanted to be proactive and... It was just a nightmare time. Um, So the findings of this, like, CDC inquest, um, this was based on data from outpatient nursing home and hospital settings, included the following, and this is from the CDC, that said that azithromycin prescribing was higher than expected across all healthcare settings during the pandemic, which kind of doesn't surprise me. Does that surprise you at all? Nope. Okay. We were throwing pickles at the wall. Exactly. It was like, I don't care. This probably won't hurt you. And we'll get to when it can or can't hurt you to some degree. Um, uh, But yeah, it's like, this probably can't hurt you. We're scared of everything. Let's let's try stuff. Um, Yeah, so one study found that over 80% of antibiotics were were just started on hospital admission during the pandemic. They just started them without really any data to necessarily decision-making process to say why. Um, so the hospital use of azithromycin and ceftriaxone, which is another antibiotic that is commonly used to treat respiratory infections, um, they had multiple peaks in 2020 and 2021. After reaching a peak in March of 2020, azithromycin or ZPAC, I'm going to call it ZPAC, even though azithromycin and ZPAC are kind of different things. I mean, it's just like azithromycin is just the drug and a ZPAC is like when you take it for five days. Um... And that, like, little boost for one day and then daily thereafter. Um, The prescribing of azithromycin decreased, but now is higher than pre-pandemic levels. So we dipped, we, like, were big in the pandemic, and then we dipped, and now we're back to prescribing it all the time. So overall, outpatient antibiotic prescribing initially decreased in 2020 and then has rebounded in 2021 and beyond to sort of pre-pandemic levels that we've gone back to just prescribing antibiotics for respiratory things. Um, so I don't know. Any thoughts on that before I go into more stuff? On why we didn't prescribe it during COVID? Why it went down and then came back up? Mm, yeah, or just any responses. I like to give you opportunities to chime in or else I'm just reading a block of text. I didn't and... know if I was still in timeout or not. The, um... <laughs> not in timeout, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think when COVID was happening, we were just surviving so i don't yeah. think there was a lot of z-pack uh, people didn't even want to go to pharmacies to pick up z-packs i know Let it, so I, I just think that's not terribly surprising and i think the fact that it is rebounded is also not terribly surprising of course and also that there's been big different swings in how we're getting infected these days now too and the you know just the epidemiology of respiratory infections after a pandemic so um there's some key U.S. statistics that I looked through, again, from the CDC. Um, this was 
highlighting how antibiotics are currently being described in outpatient settings um, and how these practices are likely contributing to the larger, larger issue of antimicrobial resistance. So meaning having bugs that are now resistant to the drugs that we can treat them with and kill them with. Um, so this was one piece of data was from 2014, and it said that 266.1 million courses of antibiotics were dis- dispensed outpatient in the U.S. Um, so that equated to more than five prescriptions written each year for every six people in the United States, which is a weird way of st- stating it, but a lot of prescriptions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, at least 28% of antibiotics prescribed in the outpatient setting were deemed unnecessary. So that's quite a few. Um, so meaning also total anti- like inappropriate antibiotic use, inclusive of unnecessary use and inappropriate selection. So meaning not the right drug for the right bug, um, too long of administration, um, and like their dosing and duration wasn't correct. Uh, may approach 50% of all outpatient antibiotic use. So basically they're saying about half of the time we prescribe it, we're prescribing it for the wrong thing or the wrong dose and duration. Just <laughs> nice. Get you um, into the Hall of Fame in baseball. Right. <laughs> Their point was that local outpatient prescribing practices contribute to local resistance patterns. So like, you know, mm-hmm. local stuff that turns into local problems, which then turns into bigger problems. Yeah, if you have um, a local clinic by you who loves the ZPAC more than anybody right. else and everybody gets it locally in a little circle radius there, you're going to have more resistance. Yeah. Um, they also mentioned that outpatient antibiotic prescribing is greatest in the winter months. That doesn't surprise me at all Not that shocking. people get right. a lot of colds, right, and are stuck indoors in, in areas, you know, where there, there's temperate climates. Um the majority of antibiotic expenditures are associated in the outpatient setting. So about six, greater than 60% of sure. the cost of antibiotics is done outpatient as opposed to inpatient antibiotics, people getting them in the hospital. They said an estimated 80 to 90% of the volume of human antibiotic use. So that makes me just think of like a giant pile of pills occurs in the outpatient setting. So a lot of this is all done as an outpatient treatment for things. Um, and then... What do you think are the two most commonly prescribed antibiotics, according well, to I mean, the CDC? I mean, azithromycin for sure. And? Amoxicillin? Yep, exactly right. The APAC? <laughs> the APAC, the A-team. Um, so let's talk dollars and cents because that's, you know, how healthcare policy actually changes, I feel like. So this is a study by Washington University in St. Louis and the Pew Charitable Trust Um stating that inappropriate antibiotic prescription cost $69 million um, in excess costs directly attributed to the prescription itself and its side effects and problems from taking it. Um, and then also antibiotic use drives the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which that causes more than 2.8 million infections and 35,000 deaths in the U.S. each year. People that get infected with bugs that we can't treat. I'm going to go on a little rant here. Can I have go a little right rant ahead. time? right okay. ahead. Rant time. First of all, just to clarify, either you haven't gotten there or you weren't going to comment on it, but who do they blame for all this? What's the tone? Who are they telling us is making this problem? <sighs> That's a tough one because th- th- this is a few different studies, and a lot of them are coming from the CDC, but I think the onus is on prescribers, and yeah. I think maybe acquiescing 
I think yeah. the, the reason the how I started the the episode with like why are we doing this? Yeah, I call bullshit. Um, so the <laughs> the the issue here, in mm-hmm. my opinion, is okay. that the 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 mot the way that clinicians are graded mm-hmm. and the things that lead to positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is the way you train anything, whether it be a dog, a child, or a clinician. (laughs) Are all wrapped up in reviews and Mm -hmm. how the patient feels and money, right? Those are the things that – it's not whether the patient gets better. There's – that doesn't – we are not judged that way these days. So, my little rant here. Mm -hmm. The – a lot of these are prescribed by urgent cares. Mm-hmm. Urgent cares exist because we can't get people into primary care doctors. Mm-hmm. Urgent cares are for-profit businesses. They need to have people coming back. They need to make people happy. Yeah. Urgent cares give out goodie bags. They give out goodie bags of prednisone. They give out goodie bags of Z-Packs. They give out goodie bags of muscle relaxers. They give out things that theoretically are not going to cause a lot of harm, but make the patient feel like they got something for the time and the copay and any effort that they went through to be at the urgent care that urgent care is great. They took great care of me. When the issue happens that you have talked about, which is complications of the prescription, mm-hmm. increased cost to the, to the system, more infections, more side effects, mm-hmm. that does not go to the urgent care. Mm-mm. That goes to the hospital in which right. the person then had to go to the hospital to get antibiotic-resistant treatment for something, or they ended up with C. difficile diarrhea, and they have to be in the hospital. Does the urgent care feel a minute of that? Do they feel any dollar and cents of that? They don't, right? Mm-hmm. And so we are a, dis, a, a segmented healthcare system that is not being graded in that way. In addition, the primary care physicians can't necessarily say, we're not going to give it to you, because guess where that patient's then going to go? To the urgent care. Right. And so we need them to be able to come back and see the primary care physician. And I'm not... I want to be very clear that I'm not saying that all primary care physicians in a non-urgent care setting are not giving these things, and everybody in an urgent care setting is giving them. It is happening on both sides. Right. But the model I am trying to get across is the prescription is being given for reasons of Google grades, health grades, money coming back, Mm -hmm. press gainy scores, all the things that are, are influencing physicians because we are being told that we are being graded by the patient and their reviews of us. Yeah. And if I say, listen, I listen to your doctor friends. I have learned that giving out this antibiotic is not good for you. It can mm-hmm. cause problems. It increases cost to the system. It's going to lead to resistance in the future. The patient will say, well, those don't sound like they're going to help my cough. So what else you got for me? <laughs> and I agree with you. So, so again, at the end of the day, the only way that this changes is not telling every provider you're doing this wrong. Sure. The only way that this changes is that the measurement stick for the provider needs to change. Yeah. And so if the provider or the hospital system or the urgent care gets dinged because an antibiotic was used in an inappropriate setting, then maybe it changes. Although I hate punishing clinicians again. So... Right. But it's a setting in which basically we need to be value like the patient improves with the right care. You get benefits for that. The patient's happy. The The outcome was good and the right prescription was done. And I don't know how to measure that. And we've been trying to do that for decades. I um, know. And there's smarter I mean, people than me. But that's what that is my long rant of basically this this problem. I agree with you. 
I do feel like there's also an, and I would maybe love at some point to have like um some type of like healthcare management executive or somebody try to explain how they follow some of these outcome measures because I am aware of, and it's probably just because I don't practice this kind of medicine routinely as much anymore because we're in a private practice, you and I, Jeremy, and um, we're not doing, we're doing specialty care to this degree. We do sports medicine. You do this type of medicine, Julie. You just don't do it with azithromycin. I agree. But my point is what I'm getting to is that there are managed care organizations in place that will punish the healthcare provider for bad patient outcomes by not paying them. Like when you have a patient that has diabetes and their A1C isn't to a certain target and you're taking care of them, you won't get paid from certain payers. Like you just won't make any money. And so there are some of that, that is some degree built in. And it's hard because you have to thread this needle of allowing physicians to practice in the way that, you know, they've been trained and they're experts in, and then also having checks and balances to some degree about who's, who's going to pay for it. And it's just very muddy. I agree with you. I think that the way that it's certainly being done now, especially when it comes to acute care things like respiratory infections, it does. It's a lot of passing the buck. I agree. And a lot of patients having an acute problem that it's that they're distressed about because they want to feel better now. And I, I can understand it in today's Amazon Prime world. Yeah. The provider... How do I want to say this? The 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 the, the Z pack is the ultimate, or one of the ultimate examples of what is a doctor? Yeah. Is a doctor meant to make you happy and feel heard and give you good customer service, or is a doctor meant to be an expert that tells you the evidence and says what you need and what you don't need? And if you disagree, that's not like. So what? You disagree. Yeah. Like, you don't have the medical degree. If the doctor right. disagrees, the doctor disagrees. You're always welcome to go get a second opinion, right? Right. And so, but I reiterate that mo- much of what is we are graded on has everything to do whether the patient leaves satisfied, not whether mm-hmm. they leave clinically better. Yeah. Now, you hope that those two things go together. Yeah. But when it comes to upper respiratory infections... <laughs> they might not. A lot of times, there's no control over getting them better. Yeah. <laughs> and so... You just, again, if they leave with nothing and then they go to somewhere else and they leave with a pack, they're going to feel like the other doctor was better. Yeah, I know. It's a bummer. And it's a big bummer. The pack is very well advertised for that. So is the Medrol <laughs> Dose Pack. Anything that comes in a pack. In a pack. Exactly. It's like nicely packaged. You know, that's it's part of the name. Well, okay. So other than cost and adding to antibiotic resistance, why else would prescribing azithromycin without like a clear indication be bad? Yeah, it's like a pretty safe medication, right? Uh, Cardiac problems. If you have, if you have a, anything that increases your risk for long QT syndrome. Yeah. Oh, yay. Good for you. Yeah. So anytime I I prescribe it, I do ask, have you you had any cardiac problems? Do you have an arrhythmia or anything like that? Um, Yeah. So. And I'll jump to that because, well, well, let me, the Washington University and Pew study cited that, yeah, inappropriate antibiotic prescription was associated with a nearly fourfold increased risk of an individual having adverse drug uh, events, or ADEs, adverse drug events, and those who receive the antibiotics. So, like, duh. Like, if you prescribe them not correctly, your patients have an increased risk of having a problem related to that. Um, but again, the, most... the patients don't associate those side effects as the person who prescribed it as a bad doctor. Right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> 
Yeah, the the main adverse drug reactions were just like general allergic reactions, like rashes and just like stuff that happens when you're on something that you have maybe some degree of allergy to or just have like a side effect of it. Um, That included like nausea and vomiting. Um, You mentioned the other one, C. difficile diarrhea, which can be life-threatening in certain people, which is a kind of an antibiotic overgrowth in the lower intestine that causes this really bad, bad, profuse diarrhea that some people have to be hospitalized for and be on long, long terms of antibiotic treatments. And it just is disgusting. No, it can kill you. Kills people. Right. Um, The other one was vulvovaginal candidiasis. So like yeast infection, sometimes antibiotics can wipe out your, your local vaginal, you know, or like genital flora and you get, you know, itchy down there and that's not comfortable at all. Um, but yeah, the, the one notable increased risk of azithromycin in particular is that it can prolong the QT interval, which is part of our electrical activity in our heart. Um, and it can be potentially what we call arrhythmogenic, or it can kick your heart into an arrhythmia. It's pretty low risk, I will say that. Um, this happens in maybe about 1% or less of people that get this antibiotic, um, I did a pretty thorough literature review on this one. It seems as though this risk is low, but not insignificant. And again, like you said, it usually affects people that have baseline heart disease or arrhythmias, but not everybody knows that they have that. So it's a risk, but it's low, but it's a big one. So then now here's like, how do we answer the question? How do we curb the prescription of unnecessary antibiotics, right? It's complicated because you're right. If you say no to somebody... What's to stop them from going and getting it somewhere else? Well, I think there are ways of... Well, let me get into what that answer is, but I don't know if you want to have thoughts before I get into um, what I found in the research. No, I ranted about this before. <laughs> I think that I think that generally speaking, the attitude and tone of these things say prescribers are doing it wrong and need to stop prescribing it. And I reiterate that there's no way in the current system for the provider to stop doing it. Yeah. it's like uh, It's like if you ask one parent... If you can go sleep over at Bethany's house and that parent says, no, you just go to the other parent and ask them, <laughs> right? Totally. Sleepovers and Z-Packs. <laughs> well, it just kind of comes down to like, yeah, like there's some degree of being a physician that has privileges and responsibilities that you kind of have to, I don't know, flex your parenting skills to some degree when you talk about how to utilize those things. Let me get again, into what I'm I was saying. I, I, yeah. that, that debate is, again, like, what is the role of the doctor? I know. It, it, and and it, so it's weird. very, very challenging. I So yeah. I would just like to put on record that since we've started recording this episode, I've received three text messages from somebody asking me to call somebody because they have a cough that will keep going. <laughs> it's, seriously. Well, that's, here's the bummer part of it, because I wonder if people that do, because we as sports medicine physicians probably do some degree of concierge medicine. Would you not disagree? That that's sure, sort of, but I mean, this happens yeah. for, I mean, this can happen from your neighbor. Uh, hey, I've been course. coughing for like seven days in a row. Can I have And I'm just telling thing? you that yeah. I just got a text time. about it. And last week I got a text from really, a neighbor from it. Yeah. it. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. People ask you about it because it's like, I feel like crap and I think that it's going to make me feel less like crap. And you're my friend, or you're my team doctor, or you're my colleague at work. Like, can you just give me the thing? I just want the thing. And I want to feel mm-hmm. better, and I want the thing. And I know you won't get that mad about it. <laughs> anyway, I would love to talk about the the original American Academy of, uh, Academy of Pediatrics article that I mentioned before. They cited the work of a physician named Rita Mangione-Smith. Um, she's with uh, Kaiser Permanente Washington. And her recommendations and her research... Um, 
is basically helping clinicians communicating effectively with the, with parents. So this is pedi- like in pediatrics with parents of the kid that's sick. Or you could just do that with, with regular adult patients, too, that are intent on having their child or themselves receive antibiotics or questioning why those antibiotics are not being prescribed, right? I feel like this happens a lot in pediatrics. I don't have kids, and I see a fair amount of kids, but I'm usually not doing antibiotic prescriptions in children. Are you? But you have kids. Yeah, I mean, I'm around it more. I, I that a lot of times prescription in children is either treating the parent or treating the school. Yeah, oh, God. Most yeah. of the time, it's it's <laughs> my kid is sick and they won't let him come back to daycare unless he has an antibiotic because then I can tell him it was something that's not communicable, being less treated, communicable, and therefore yeah, being he can come treated. Back. Yes. Yeah. It's oh, it's it's public health policy being taken on by local education centers and then the parents are like i don't have time for this like i don't have time for this right i agree give me the eyedropper full of amoxicillin so i can act like i'm doing a thing yeah i want all the inhalers right i want all 17 of them give me every one of them i know i've been there Ugh, i can imagine well dr mangione smith um her quality improvement intervention research which is called dart which stands for dialogue around respiratory illness treatment or dart she suggests the following steps. It's actually Darrett. It is Darrett, but let's let's be They nice. took out the it. They took out the illness. <laughs> the illness part. Respiratory illness is one long word. It's like a hashtag. <laughs> um, so she recommends, one, review the physical exam findings with the patient or their parent. Mm-hmm. Two, deliver a clear diagnosis. What is this? Call it, call it by its name. What is it specifically that you're treating? Other than just like you know lung bug like call it what you think it is you know and that it forces you to give it a name this is what i love this is basically goes into the parenting part it's so great that she's a pediatrician who's recommending this she said provide a two-part recommendation so the quote the example is unfortunately in this case since it's a viral infection antibiotics will not work but here is what you can do so like explain what it is why you can't give or why you shouldn't give the z pack or the amox or whatever but here's here is what you can do you know give them some alternative treatment strategies that are proven maybe like the tessalon pearl <laughs> in this case um and then the next one is provide a contingency plan if symptoms worsen that's what a lot of people want to know like what if this doesn't work what if i keep getting worse what do i do then you know like at, what, what situation should you call me or should you reach out or go to the ER? Or, you know, like you have to give that information. Well, I think you've hit on another major problem. Yeah. Again, p- getting a hold of the doctor is miserable I know. in this day that and was age. Our, so wasn't like, that one of our first episodes? Sure. Why so, can't again, I call like, my doctor? Yeah. My, my, my kid, I certainly didn't come in here the first day my kid was sick. Most of the time. Yeah. Right. Right. So I, been this, sick my kids while. had this five or six days. And yeah. I'm over it. And, yeah. okay, you're saying this is a viral upper respiratory infection and you should treat it with you know honey and humidifiers and x y and z and the z pack is wrong for x y and z and if it's not getting better in another five days give me a call and it may be appropriate at that time and i think probably most people would be fine with that except for the fact they're like i'm gonna call in five days and i'm not gonna hear from you for two days and then in that case i may not even hear from you and so i think this is one of those things where um it was recommended maybe even to give the z pack uh, or the antibiotic and say don't fill it for four days. Right. And a wasp, if it gets a wait you know, and see prescription. It, yeah. yeah. So if you, if you need this in four days, prescribe it. And then again, that, that person, 
I, I think the general stats on that, which may have changed, but when I was in residency a decade ago, was like a third will go fill it right away, a third won't fill it, and a third will fill it f- four days from now. So yeah. you've cut down a third of the prescriptions that maybe would have happened. Certainly. So, and then that person leaves satisfied and they have right. a contingency plan and they don't feel adrift at sea that they can't get a hold of you or anybody when their kid or themselves feel like more crap five days from now. But yeah. So yeah. And then it, the last bullet point was recommend watchful waiting and symptom relief, which was sort of part of the two-part recommendation part. But anyway, I found that really fascinating. And that was my whole thought process about z And there really wasn't anything that, you know, is horribly new information, but it just is, especially because right now I'm sure there's a lot of z being prescribed. And again, the risk of it is relatively low. But again, I think it's just sort of that kicking the can down the road of like, I just don't feel like having this argument with you. So just here it is. Fine. Goodbye. Yeah, I would like to give the uh, listeners an, uh, a look behind the curtain here in which sure. uh, this speaking doctor friend was ill for a while, lost his voice. We hmm. commented on it um, and had had a bunch of people in the house sick for a while and eventually ended up on a pack. And the other doctor friend who is sitting on the other side of this uh, conversation said, what are Z-Packs? Why are we giving out so many Z-Packs? Didn't I prescribe it for you? <laughs> you may or may not have. I cannot confirm or deny <laughs> no, that. No, that's right. I prescribed you something different, I think. No, you did. I, yeah, I think I did. I can't <laughs> confirm or deny in case I need to confirm or deny that. But the short answer is this was an offline kind of like friendly your doctor friend argument sure. that has now yeah. made it to the airwaves because oh, yeah. I... I believe in the Z-Pack, but I will, I'll give you my background. I tend to not use it, and it's hard to put days on it, but I certainly won't use it within the first, like, five to seven days of sure. a viral, of some sort of upper respiratory illness. Yeah. So somebody's going to have to have had symptoms for at least a week. And then generally at the week, you know, at least a week mark, the things I'm looking to hear are, you know, I'm coughing up a lot of mucus. The mucus itself is thick. It's very, you know, I don't care about the color per se, but certainly if they're like, it's dark green stuff that's happening throughout the day, it's in my chest, that coming up. I'm more inclined to say, I think the Z-Pack will help because of the anti-inflammatory effects that happen because it works on macrophages. I did look that up while you were talking. Yay! Oh, good. Well, and that's fine. And I think that that's, you're providing data as to why you're doing it. I just... I don't, to be honest with you. I, I yeah, but I'm not helping the problem because I'm not helping the problem. But again, I think I'm working within the the boundaries of the system that I work in. I in addition, so if I have somebody come up and say like I'm coughing all the time and I'm not really coughing up much, but it is deep in my chest, that's the person I use prednisone on um, because yeah. that's anti-inflammatory. If you're really getting a true anti-inflammatory effect, or mm-hmm. if they have a history of asthma or that kind of stuff, sure. I agree with you. I just don't prescribe it very much, and not because I'm trying to be holier than thou. I just don't like. I don't know. And maybe there was some, maybe it was because I worked with Rob Sitfenberg when I was I think, in residency. I think history is on your side, Julia. No, I think no, no. I, th- again, I'm not trying to be hoity-toits. I just, I just don't. And so it's funny um, because I just, I see it as a, as a placation medication, which is. Well, for better or worse, I call it the urgent care, like goodie bag. The urgent yeah. care goodie bag is here's your prednisone and here's your Z-Pack. It's like, my knee hurts. Here's your Z-Pack. You're like, well, I don't know if that's going to work. But you're like, no, we just give that to people on the way out. You know, you use it, <laughs> you use it if you need it. I mean, anybody listening to this podcast who's taken prednisone knows how you feel on prednisone. Like, yeah. you could go in with any complaint, get 50 milligrams of prednisone for five days and be like, yep, I felt better. Mm, that place is the right. best. Well, then, <laughs> but until you're off of it, then you feel like absolute trash panda because... Doesn't matter. For five days, I was great. <laughs> you, you, Yeah, you've, you've goldfish. You've forgotten about Five that, yeah. stars. <laughs> 
I know. It's just in the end, yeah, I want people to believe me. I want them to like me. I want to I want to have a positive interaction with that person. I want to feel like I'm doing something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Other than and if they seem sad or disappointed, it's it's tricky when you're you're a physician, yep. you're a human being too, and you just want people to feel better. And why not? And it, the answer is because it just it snowballs into a bigger problem over time. And you, we can choose to be on the right side of history of things, and we can we can choose to uphold boundaries and give explanations. And just you can still be very kind and empathic and and level with people. And be like, I know you feel like shit, man. I get it. It's okay, you know. And here's a backup plan, or here is your wait and see prescription, or whatever. Like here's ways that we can mitigate your suffering. That isn't going to make things a little bit worse, potentially, for the world. <laughs> yeah. In, in all seriousness, because yeah. I feel like I've been a little bit uh, uh, aggressive in my no. in my defense of uh, the Z-Pack in this episode. Well, thanks. I tried to be aggressive, so if I didn't come off aggressive, I apologize. I meant to be, you know, really going for the Z-Pack. But the... In all seriousness, every inter- encounter with somebody is an opportunity for education. Yep. And so even in cases where I still, you know, you prescribe it, you can still give the education of like why it's not okay to do it and why we think it's causing more problems. And ultimately, the next time that person comes in, you now have the opportunity to be like, remember what we talked about before? This is something I don't think we should prescribe it this time. Yeah. You know, and again, like every opportunity to kind of break down sure. some barriers and, and give long education. Game. Is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was that uh, was that the end of, of my That's entree today? That's the end of okay. what is a Z-Pack and what does it do? <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. We're back for the uh, uh, second, latter, early end of part of this. Why don't you like calling it dessert? You're weird. Call it dessert. It's fine. Until we come up with a better name, it's still dessert. Quit trying to make fetch happen. Hey, we're going to make fetch happen, and here's the dessert part of your episode. <laughs> Speaking of dessert, I don't know about you, Julie, but when I was growing up, we only bought products that were fat-free. Ugh. Yes, gross, which just means fat-free and sugar-high, or, like, gives you anal leakage. <laughs> it was in the 90s. I remember. We, we, we'd we go out, and we'd have something that had, like, we'd go out and eat somewhere that was not my house. And we'd have yeah. something that had whole milk in it. And I'd be like, whoa, what is this? It's delicious. Oh, and the attitude bad. was yeah. like, you enjoy that because it's not good for you. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> you know, like, right? So mm-hmm. we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. Um, but a recent headline in the New York Times is my full fat dessert today. Love the it. The headline is, are low fat dairy products really healthier? Uh, I'm going to say no. I'll spoil the ending. No, they aren't. Um, Yay! But the, but, but, but the guidance is really, really confusing because it doesn't reflect that. So I'm going to give you three very prominent like dietary guidances that we can use. So the first one is the World Health Organization. Hmm? People have heard of them. Yep. If you go to their dietary guidance, it is, says explicitly eating reduced fat dairy foods. So don't eat full fat dairy foods. American Heart Association. People are pretty familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Very, very easy to read. Low fat or non-fat dairy. There's no opportunities for other type of dairy. And the last one is the Dietary Guidelines for America. This is a very long kind of like a PDF that gets released, um, I think, every five years. This one's from 2020 to 2025. It's by the USDA. Um, mm-hmm. And they say for dairy, most choices should be fat-free or low-fat. So they're the only ones that say most choices. But, again, these are current guidelines, okay? Most so, choices should be fat-free or low-fat. Low-fat. For dairy. This is all for dairy. 
Okay. Understood. Okay. Gotcha. So, but yeah, that, I mean, so if somebody listening to this episode or yours truly went and said, I wonder if I should be having full fat dairy, I've heard good things. And I went on and looked at these three very reputable sources. Remember, we mm-hmm. tell people, go find reputable sources. World Health Organization, AHA, Dietary Guidelines for America from the U.S. Drug Association. It would tell you fat free or low fat. And the evidence does not back that up. So I want to uh, use some quotes from uh, um, this article in which they interviewed Dr. Darius Mozaferian, a cardiologist at Tufts University. Love it. Uh, Sorry, Darius, if you're listening and I said it wrong. He says this recommendation stems from the idea that full fat dairy products are high in saturated fats. And we have been told that saturated fats are bad for us. So choosing lower fat versions can reduce your risk for heart disease. He goes on to say that this guidance goes back to 1980. And so when the first edition of these dietary guidelines came out for Americans in 1980, we haven't updated the guidelines. And so most studies, he says, on this, on the health effects of dairy fat have failed to find any benefits of prioritizing a low fat version over a whole full fat version. So what's that you say, Julie? Guidelines that don't reflect the current science? I don't believe it. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah, because they're older than me. (laughs) (laughs) If something, some recommendation is older than me. Maybe just have like have a little a little twinge of uh, the bullshit detector going off. Well, in fairness, the up, the guidelines have been updated. They just haven't updated to reflect the science, right? Those dietary guidelines in nineteen eighty. Yes. The new one does say twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty five. It just you know still it, it. Why do you think it? Why do you think it's not updated? Do you think they haven't gotten to the data, or do you just think that the comfort of saying low fat and non fat sounds better? Yeah, probably that, and probably because it. It's sticky to tease out, um, like, what is, having to explain, like, what is good fat, what is bad fat. It makes me think of um, our conversation that we have with Dr. Fasano, which is coming up about the gut microbiome, about how really in the end, it's going to be very difficult to make blanket recommendations of how everybody should eat, because everybody has different nutrient needs and ways that they process food. And we don't even like, we're scratching the surface of understanding that. So I think it's just easy to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, have like, I guess skim milk is fine. <laughs> I love how you said that because like many topics we explore in our podcast, broad statements are very, very difficult for large groups yes. because large groups of people and large groups of factors where you make these broad statements all assume that those people slash factors are the same. And we know that most groups are very heterogeneous. They are different, even though they share a commonality. And so it is apparent through some of the research that I will briefly go through that not all saturated fats are created equal. So we can give saturated fats their, their, their due time. Some can be neutral or good for you, which seems to be maybe the case with dairy fats. So this is a dessert episode. I don't want to do a huge deep dive. I certainly could have, um, on all the studies available, but there are at least a few studies as recent as 2018 that suggest full fat dairy may actually be beneficial with decreased risks of high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, and type two diabetes. These are all association type studies without Mm -hmm. randomized control. So it's, it's not going to tell you that it is causative or not, but it may be enough to at least say that full fat dairy is not bad for us and that low fat options may be not better for us. Um, and then there was one meta-analysis actually from this year um, that that uh, we always talk about meta-analyses are the best form of study as it, as it pools randomized control studies. Um, and it was published this year and it showed no difference in the cardiometabolic factors, including no difference in weight gain when consuming full fat or low fat dairy. 
So I think even more so than just diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all the stuff that make us live longer, people would be like, yeah. well, if I do the full fat one, I'm going to gain weight. And it actually showed no difference in any in, in any weight. Um, so I thought that was interesting. So the take home is not that full fat dairy is better. The data isn't you know, good enough at this point to say that it is, but it is probably strong enough to say that low fat isn't better. And therefore full fat is a natural product. I think generally speaking, we prefer the natural way something comes, whole foods, things like that. And therefore I think in this case, Mm -hmm. maybe full fat is the right way to go. So I can tell you for me, I'm buying the real ice cream without hesitation. (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. You can put half and half in your coffee but maybe stop asking your doctor for a Z-Pack. <laughs> Listen to your doctor friends. The amazing music is credited to SkillCell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. <laughs>